You're now inside a mountain. This is my podcast about walking. Sometimes the landscape I walk through is real, but often it's imaginary, creative terrain. In this episode, it's both. I walk with writer Sally Bailey, author of Girl with Dove, and her new book, No Boys Play Here. They're novels as much as memoirs, poetry as much as prose. At times, they become play scripts, alternately heartbreaking and hilarious. Sally's invented a new form of braided fiction, in which she's both the girl in her own book, but also the neglected child who walks into other people's stories. She has adventures with Jane Eyre and Miss Marple, exchanges places with Jessica in The Merchant of Venice, and strolls around London with Falstaff. Sally's story begins in a neglected seaside town on the south coast, the place she lived as a child and yet always imagined herself leaving. Stage entrances and exits, as you'll see, have always been the way that she's mapped her path. Hers was a family of 12 children and three adults, all packed into a chaotic, damp, rented house a few streets back from the seafront. The strange brigade was run like a fiefdom, by domineering, vengeful Aunt Di, with black bullet eyes and a long, snaky smile. Di, who was wreathed in spirals of smoke and spoke in tongues. Everyone did as they were told, including Sally's obedient mother and grandmother. All men were driven out on Aunt Di's orders. But in no boy's play here, Sally breathes life back into her absent father and uncle, in an attempt to understand their mental frailties and alcoholism. Because Sally possessed something more powerful than her controlling aunt's rage, a wild, soaring imagination nourished by books from the library. From the age of five, she'd collect a bag of books three times a week and hide in the cellar to devour them. First Agatha Christie, then Charlotte Bronte, Charles Dickens and Shakespeare. Her imaginary world became so real that when she could bear the noise and chaos no longer, she abandoned her real family altogether. At 14, I extracted myself from my first home and I signed myself in to care. And it did feel as though the light had gone out, as though I were entering the realm of the underworld. I was back down in the cellar with a single light bulb. I had been told that I might die, that my body might give up. I'd stopped eating. But my not eating was a way of relating to a new form of life. I wanted, I think, to imagine I was, in fact, Jane Eyre. And I took on this strange process of transference, looking for another body to which I could attach myself, a new identity. But in order to create that new identity, in order to cross over or pass over into this new life and this new body, I had to stop the first pulse and the first life. Sally's new life, hand in hand with Jane Eyre, took her first into a children's home and then to foster families. But with her passion for literature, she won a place at university, the first child from the West Sussex Council care system to do so. And now, in her extraordinary metamorphosis, she teaches English at Oxford.
With some dread, she and I went back to her seaside town to find the house that she left all those years ago. Number 14 at the age of 14. 14, two times seven. Seven times table, my favorite. 14B I see here on the door. But there are three flats. There are three bells actually. Do you want to look through the letterbox? Brass knocker. My mother loved brass. Um, So that's the hallway, which is now covered in blue carpet, but it used used to be covered in black and white tiles. And peering through the door, I can see those um, those cornices that my mum used to love, but the moulding in the shape of that arch there. Those two doors on the left were the doors that led into my mother's flat, downstairs as we called it. That was our front room there on the left, and the second door led into the hallway, out into the kitchen and my mother's room to the left. But it is much smaller than I remember. That is the infamous white door at the top of the stairs, which is where my aunt used to live, which was the invisible space where no one ever passed beyond. It's rather sinister looking. It's quite bleak. Does it make you feel bleak? Um, it does. I think it's a. I think it's um. I think it's quite a depraved space, actually. I think it's very battered and sad and forlorn, and it's very full of sadness and melancholy and decay. And I think of the number of times we plonked up and down those three, four steps and pushed the twins' pram down there. I remember lots of prams going up and down and old ladies' trolleys filled with paraffin heater, filled with paraffin for the heaters, I should say. I get the impression that you don't really like lingering here. No, I don't feel very comfortable. And in fact, sorry, I'm obsessing over those steps, but they remind me of gravestones. (laughs) They're the same colour and texture as a, as a rather decayed gravestone. The back of the house, reached via a narrow, scruffy alleyway, seemed less sinister, less depraved. She describes the alley in Girl with Dove, and in typically inventive prose, the passageway known locally as a twitten becomes a twit, then a twig in her hair, and then somehow back into a twit who turns out to be Jane Eyre, leaving her bag behind in the carriage. Came down here, and stray dogs, which we sometimes fed. But this is the back wall, and this is the back gate. And it's open. It's open. Oh my goodness, it wasn't open. There is the garden. That's the back of the house. That is the bathroom window that we used to climb through playing our tweet tweet you're out game imagining we were birds and trying to cross the back of the house without touching the ground that was the upstairs boys room my cousin boy cousins lived up there that was our kitchen at some point down there but it's been that's been changed and then the fame the infamous mrs robinson was sometimes glimpsed right at the top there in what looks like a roof extension or loft the, the woman who I mentioned in my book, but we never actually saw, only glimpsed. Does this view of the house make you feel slightly better than the front do? Because the front bit. seemed to affect you quite yes. badly. Yes, it's very sad, that front. I think it's the Tillet sign. I think I associate that with people living in DOS houses, you see. 
Both her books speak in the child's voice, sometimes plaintive, often comical, always quizzical. Sally Bailey or Jane Eyre, it's often hard to tell. Jane Eyre is a strange creature. Hers is a world of moonlight and scudding clouds, of tall dark trees and towers. He longs to be part of this world. Given half the chance, Mr Rochester would like to be a fairy too. Because Jane Eyre has imagination, and imagination radically alters things. It changes outlooks and aspects of people and places, moods and feelings, even the very end of things. Who marries who? Imagination can turn your grey house into a bower of flowers. But once you let it in, it's bound to turn you out of doors. Imagination will soon send you packing into the wide green world. In the public library of my small seaside town, I began to find my way into the world. I hadn't read Rasselas yet, but years later I did. And when I did, the picture of Jane Eyre in the garden of Lowood came rushing back to me. And close behind her, another picture of a pale-faced girl on a tree stump in Lobb's Wood, poised to ask her question. What are you reading? May I see? The public library which nourished Sally's imagination is a short walk from the house at number 14. Then the library had a parquet floor and she remembers the squelch of her sandals as she crept from children's to adults' fiction. Somehow, even as a very young child, she managed to convince the librarian that she needed Charlotte Bronte and Charles Dickens. Then the library was a hushed place, and even now neither of us could help adopting the low voices that we were always instructed to use in libraries as children, although we were the only ones whispering. I remember crossing that, that large square space and holding my breath and counting the number of footsteps I made to get to here, to adult fiction, where I'd come to find Charles Dickens in the first instance. And the shelves as we find them now are fairly static. I mean, all the books are covered in plastic and look the same, and it's difficult to see where Dickens might be. His D, but then he's not obvious. Whereas when I first came to find David Copperfield, Charles Dickens, these shelves were filled with old leather volumes covered in gold lettering. And I can remember pushing my hands against them, pressing my hands up against them, and it felt much more like a museum and that these were artefacts or relics of an older era. They probably were only just late 19th, early 20th century copies, but... It doesn't have that sense of a rite of passage, I suppose, from one area of reading to another. So the young reader with the picture books to the child who then begins to understand narrative and story and wants suspense to the child who then really, I suppose, goes looking for history, family history in writers like Bronte and Dickens. And in fact, I have just found Jane Eyre. She wasn't immediately obvious. She's in the wrong place. She's in the wrong place. Um, she is currently between oh. Brooke and 
Brockmore. Brockmore. I think we should move her to the weekend. Should we just do it? Let's do it. That's I'm very relieved that Jane is there after all. Yes. What's she doing there? But, um, but as you can see, this Jane Eyre is um, a Penguin modern paperback. Also covered in plastic. Also all covered in plastic. Um, Jane Eyre that I remember holding, I think, was red, red, red leather. The book I'm holding in my hand now doesn't have any of the character of the book I, I remember taking home with me, which felt much more like um, something embodied, something visceral, like the Red Room that we all know is the central symbol of Jane Eyre. Here. <laughs> That's better. <laughs> With Jane Eyre back in her proper sphere, we tried to find that other orphan child, David Copperfield. I'm looking for Dickens. And here he is, but not the Dickens I remember. This is Dickens covered in plastic. <laughs> and I don't think they did that to library books back in the 70s and 80s. There are only three Dickens. There are only three. There's a few up here. We've got Martin Chuzzlewit, Christmas Carol, easy. <laughs> <laughs> Mystery of Edwin Drood, no David Copperfield. So, I wouldn't have been very pleased about that. And there was something about seeking adult fiction that represented motherless, fatherless, yes. parentless, tetherless children. Absolutely. So the orphan. Although I'm not sure I understood fully that David Copperfield was an orphan. So there was something intuitive going on about the way I was finding books. I think often when we read, we, we're, we're almost drawn to things magically without quite understanding how we've got to the next book. And I think my reading path was very much like that. It was this strange island hopping from one book to the next. But all the books I read between the ages of eight to 12 had this element of family model and mystery to them. People have multiple names and multiple guises. The squelchy sandals, the imperious librarian, the marked, scratched, embossed leather books. Vivid memories from that childhood of chaos and noise and not enough space. And there was something else. I also remember getting my library card, it, that being covered in plastic, and having this sense of responsibility to return those books unscathed. And there being a terrible worry if one of them went missing under the bed or I took it to school and left it there. So I think I had a very, very strong sense almost of the library as being some kind of sacred vow that you signed up for and that you, you certainly didn't leave those books lying around and you always returned them on time. I'd often read outside, so I'd roam about. I'd roam about, so on the on the beach, on the promenade, along the pier, sitting on the breakwaters. Then, on the way back from school and in the summer holidays, I'd spend time in Lobswood, which is this little triangle. It now looks very small, filled with cow parsley and at the moment bluebells. And I'd sit there on a tree stump, feeling as though I were completely camouflaged. And I think what I was trying to do was I was trying to create an alternative l landscape a place that was not at home. So this is Lobb's Wood, where I first came to read, aged about five or six, by myself, which felt, at the time, very dangerous, very risky, 
to be sitting around by yourself in this space. I think there were quite a lot of local legends about things going on in Lobswood, mysterious men with dogs. And at that point in my reading life, I was reading murder mysteries. I was reading Agatha Christie. I think I'd also just read 101 Dalmatians. So I was slightly fixated on the idea of dogs and dog walking. But this was the place I imagined bodies being buried in at night. And the, as you can see, it is a small space. But to me, age five or six or seven, this was a place of trepidation. And I used to sit by the base of one of these trees, surrounded by the cow parsley. Um, and I think, I really, I was trying to just hide. This was a... This was a place for concealment, for hiding myself and trying to find a new landscape for being in, away from my home. This here, I think this is my tree. I'm pretty sure this is where I position myself. So facing, now I can see looking again, I'm facing away from my home. My back is towards home and it's facing towards the library. And I think as a child, I had a very strong sense of mapping myself and of direction and of lines and roads pointing a certain way so I was faced out from the beach away from home towards the library towards the centre of town north not south and seeing it again now does it make you feel proud of the little girl that you were does it make you feel slightly mournful for the little girl that you were well I think I was I think I was very alone in this space nobody knew where I was I was unmonitored I do remember there being strangers passing me by and thinking that was a bit risky. Um, I was proud of having found my own territory, I think, and being independent. And I think this space for me did represent quite literally carving out a space for myself in the world, and that's what I was looking for. This was my reading world, and this was my little reading chair. I think there's something about the size of the cow parsley that I'm struck by now, even, how tall it is. It's about the same height as I might have been aged six to ten, I suppose. And I think as a child, you start to measure the world quite definitely. You look at the height of things and the size of things, the length and the width of things. And here I was in Lobswood, looking, as I've said, for an alternative world, new camouflage, new landscape, new measurements. And the cow parsley was, in a sense, the beginning of my new nature, my new landscape my new covering. And I do think that I imagine myself here as the equivalent of Jane Eyre, hiding out in the woods around Thornfield Hall. As we walked from Lobs Wood towards the beach, we skirted a long flint stone wall. The rows of bronze, grey and silver stones took on the guise of a chart, a wall of sedimented layers, a way of mapping a walk or an expedition or a childhood. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten or twelve layers of of stones carefully sealed inside cement. It makes me think of the bunk beds that we slept in as children. And I always took the bottom bunk. I was always low down on the floor, stowing myself away like a pirate in my bed. And I think I associate my reading life with that sense of being lowly, being low down, being nobody and then suddenly finding words that can elevate you and lift you up out of your lowly circumstances. And my trips to the library were part of that odyssey of getting taller and grander and moving up in stature through language. 
I remember the word privation in Jane Eyre and not understanding what that word meant. I understood what the word private meant. Private schools, private life, private spaces, there were none of those at home. But the word privation has stayed with me for years. But I later came to understand that it meant going without, lacking, suffering for not having something. And looking back at my childhood, I realised that actually I had a lot of nourishment and my nourishment came from the English language and then from plot and storyline and narrative. And the writers that I was drawn to were complicated writers. Their sentences were complicated. They were sinuous and difficult. They were torturous sentences. Dickens' sentences are difficult. They meander. They don't get to the point. They don't find their subject easily. And I think that's that's a way of thinking about growing up, reading those confusing, often muddled sentences where one character enters and another exits and another climbs over on top of the other and trying to work out who people are in relation to one another. That was all part of my coming-of-age process. It was all part of my understanding of my backdrop and my backstory, my strange family life with all these peculiar goings-on. And I created an alternative reality through which I could work out these strange mysteries and these incomplete tales and these strange family lines that seemed to disappear out of nowhere. Where had poor Sue gone? Who was poor Sue married to? Who was she the daughter of? Who was her mother? Where was her father? Etc. Where was my father? Where was David Copperfield's father? Where was Jane Eyre's father? Even though it was her choice to walk away from the deranged empire built by her aunt... The moment Sally discovered that her mother had made that decision final was harrowing. That moment when I saw the form in the children's home on the lap of the social worker who'd come to explain to me what was going to happen next was chilling, I think. I didn't recognise my mother in that signature. We'd never discussed me leaving home in that way. It was all managed by this one deadly white form and her name appearing in this small box floating in a sea of white with strange black lines running out of it. I think there, there must have been something terribly painful, dreadfully painful f- for my mother in that signature. A death, it's a death. But now, on her narrow boat in Oxford and teaching English literature, the sounds are of ducks, the weir, a spring breeze, the gentle lapping of the river nudging the boat against the bank and then back out into the flow. It's ferociously cold in winter, but there's a stove and, of course, plenty of books. No Boys Play Here conjures the child's voice even more imaginatively than the first book did. The prose moves so fluidly in and out of Shakespeare, so deftly from one apparently unrelated idea to another, that it's more akin to silken poetry. And when Sally performs it, it becomes dramatic verse. Fighting's in the blood. But apart from the blood on the doorstep, I don't remember much of Dad. His bones have been cleared away. His crumpled crown buried deep down. Bones are for bins and battlefields, May says. My father walked through a sea of bones to get back home, dear. A million men, dead. 
and the only one of his battalion to survive. I guess some have it coming to them, and some don't. Those Germans, though, they were devils. But long after the Battle of the Somme, there was my father, Lawrence Hill, who came from the Gorbals of Glasgow, where blood and gore grow deep and strong. The Gorbals, where God sits and stares and plays with his balls, though the people of Glasgow are starving. Where the rich people put the poor people of the town, the people of God, God's villagers, the labourers, the men and women who go out into the fields. Except there aren't many fields in Glasgow now, mainly factories where women thread and spin, 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 until their fingers go hard at the tips and they can no longer wear gloves or go to church or even say their prayers. Where the men stand on the docks in biting winds, hauling in the cars until their joints cave in. Men! Men sent home to sit by the fire and listen to their wives yell and scream, yell and scream, yell and scream, yell and scream at the sight of the empty larder five days in. And the stone-cold fire and the pinched hands and blue toes of the young bairns. Fretting with fever and famished, the young bairns. Fretting with fever and famished. No Boys Play Here is a book about spatial deprivation, a child growing up in a house that's overstuffed with people and insufficiently spacious. So she goes looking for room wherever she can find it, down in the cellar where she begins to read her Shakespeare. And Shakespeare opens up a set of possibilities through through a series of scenes and dramas and vignettes. She begins to understand quite quickly that theatre is useful as a way of imagining the world, as a set of exits and entrances. So here she is in the cellar, in the dark space, reading, with one lamp bulb over her head, one light bulb over her head, and she begins to imagine the world as a stage, as Shakespeare did himself. And through the darkness, she starts to see characters emerging, and those characters have been lost to her, her male relatives, her uncle and her father, who she begins to blend and merge with Shakespeare's characters, in particular those characters in the history plays. Falstaff, the drunkard and the wastrel, Henry IV, who is to be King of England, and his son, Prince Hal, and then Hal's friend, Poins. The presiding monarch of the house, who was my aunt, Aunt Di. Aunt Di is the equivalent in the child's imagination in No Boys Play Here as the king, the pope, the queen, and also the father of the house. So she's, she's Shylock in some way too. So yes, she's the patriarch, bizarrely. Back entrances were for dustmen and dogs, and in her imagination, men were a lower order of being. They're lower caste, so they're peasants and serfs, they're down there. Um, and they should be taking out the bins, that's about all they were worth. Um, so yes, and, and then perhaps a stray dog or two might you know, be associated with, with men in her mind. So, so yes, feral creatures, creatures who had no place in, in domestic life and in family life. Spare parts, rubbish. I was very aware when I wrote the first part, 
girl with dove, that I had left a few characters lying prone on the floor, these strange shadows and shapes, the implication of other bodies, male bodies, other lives, other histories. I wanted then to raise these men up, to resurrect them, to bring them to life, to animate them as characters in their own right, with their own histories and their own genealogies. It's a difficult thing to do because I only had scraps and shards of song and ballad and tunes that my father sang when he was around for the first eight years or so and then my uncle James who moved in for a couple of years after dad left so I had to put together this this sort of lyrical soundscape of interrupted tones of Scottish voices and storytelling um, swearing with uncle James lots of swearing and strange peculiar habits drinking lager in the front room getting drunk, lying on the floor, back to the floor again. Men spent lots of time on the floor in my in the child's imagination, eating salt and vinegar crisps. And then some of the time, Uncle James was outside of the house, so the child associates Uncle James with wandering, like a stray dog or a tramp or a homeless man. Uncle James left the house some time after lunch to go looking for drink and salt and vinegar crisps. And we used to trace and trail him around town, down alleyways and roads and I always associate Uncle James still with alleyways and Twittons. He in fact stayed with us for a couple of years and then he went to live in the Doss house on Norfolk Road. Norfolk Road named after the largest most prestigious wealthiest duchy in England the Duke of Norfolk seat. So he lived in Norfolk House or the Norfolk Hotel as it was then called. We thought it was again quite extraordinary that Uncle James got to live in a hotel with his lager and his crisps, down a very narrow, dank, dark alleyway. Down this dank and dark alleyway, there were other men. Um, They turned out to be drunk. Nonetheless, we hadn't seen men before, so this was our, our place of interest and intrigue and mystery. But a redemptive, echoing strain pulses from No Boy's Play here too, the soothing balm of capturing your troubles by writing them down. I began to write, I think, about eight, and it corresponded with the same time that my grandmother taught me how to touch type. Every Saturday morning, she gave me porridge, she taught me how to make porridge, and she brought out her old Pittman's typing course from when she had learned to type as a young secretary. And I learnt to I learnt the dance of those letters and the relationships between those letters, the A and the D and the Z and the W and the C. And it took me not very long actually to learn how to touch those keys without having to think. And I think it was also the beginning of my intuitive relationship to patterns of letters, letters forming words, words forming clauses, clauses forming sentences, sentences forming paragraphs. It was related to the digits touching the surfaces of those keys, like piano keys. And somehow that that ran back into my body life and into my growing limbs. And so that writing and speaking and reading and the movement of digits and then the movement of my limbs were somehow all related. The little girl who concealed herself in Lobb's Wood to talk to Jane Eyre. The teenager who walked into care to save her imagination. Who took herself to university and then to a life as a writer and Oxford lecturer. Different scenes in the play script with their entrances and exits. 
all layered into her books like stripes in a flint stone wall, and all summoned into being by the dance of letters, the pattern of words, and the soaring power of the imagination.